Uh, as you make your way to your seat, uh, we are taking a, continuing our little short break through the book of Romans, or right at the end of Romans, so we're going to finish that up after Easter. Um, but as we, as we kind of have Palm Sunday this morning, or preparing for Easter, um, I, I wanted to do something just a little different, just to, just to kind of get our minds right and our hearts right as we kind of go into this Easter week. And um, man, there's so many things you could preach on throughout this week, and uh, wrestled and had too many options, and so... Uh, decided uh, to look at the seven phrases of Jesus on the cross. He says seven things on the cross as he's dying, and we're going to look at all seven of those. And really, there could, you could, I could have preached one sermon on each of these phrases. Uh, and so uh, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to go fast, and it's going to be a little more teachy, and, and, and we're just going to roll with it and, and kind of align our hearts ready for this week. But as I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how um, I've, I've been around a lot of people uh, on their deathbed. Uh, both from a kind of professional pastor capacity and and just personally. I've been around a lot of people in the hospital or at home who know they have hours or days left to live. And, and in all of those situations, uh, pretty, pretty much every time that happens, uh, those people uh, got some things they want to get off their chest or got some things they want to say or make sure other people know. They want to make sure that their loved ones know that they love them, right? They want to make sure that they, you know, express some of these things to people uh, before they go. They want to make sure maybe there's been some, some unforgiveness or some bitterness or some, some strained relationships and they want to fix those, right? They got days to live and they want to they meet with that person and, and say they're sorry or forgive them or make things right before it's too late. And, and, and the opposite is also true, right? Like, like when you know somebody who is uh, on, who has days to live, oftentimes we feel like it, we, we want to go and there's all these things we want to say to them. Right, we want to go and we want to make sure they know how much how they know how much we loved them and how much we cared for them. We want to share a thought or a memory with them and make sure they know something. And, and those last words, those last things that we say are, are often very deep and they matter and they're very important. And they tell us a lot about that person and a lot about ourselves. And as we prepare for Easter and this time of celebration of the resurrection, and we and we as we think about Jesus in this week of this Passion Week and him dying on the cross. We're going to look at these seven phrases of Jesus, right? These seven things that he says, his last words uh, on, before he dies uh, as he's hanging on the cro- cross. And because I think these last words give us some insight into who he was and some insight into what he was accomplishing. Jesus obviously never wasted a word, right? And that is especially true with these last things that he said. These seven phrases are found throughout the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we're going to look at all of them. Uh, in, in order. So let's dig in. The first one, the first phrase is found in Luke 23:34. Luke 23:34, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's hanging on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think one of the first things we learn about this is that Jesus practiced what he preached. He practiced what he preached. If we're honest with ourselves, we know how hard it is to practice what we preach. As parents in this room know this all too well, because when you say to your kids, do as I say, not as I do. We know what it is to believe something to be right, to believe something to be the right course of action, and to yet not do it, or to do the opposite. Jesus talked a lot about loving your neighbor, right? He talked a lot about love, and he talked a lot about, he took that further, he talked a lot about loving your enemies. He said to, we are to, to love our enemies, to bless those who curse you, to do good to those who hate you, and to pray for those who mistreat you and persecute you. 
Now, it is easy to talk a big game, right? It's easy to say those things. It's, it's easy to say, hey, love your enemies. But it's harder to do it. I, I was thinking about how every, every sports team, every, every football team, every year, they think this is our year. We got all these new draft picks, these new trades, this new coach. This is the year we're going to win it all. And every year the Cowboys think that, and every year it doesn't happen. Not for the Bengals. It's easy to say it's harder to actually win. It's easy to talk a big game. It's, it's easy to say, hey, you should love your enemies until somebody punches you in the face. It's a little harder. It's easy to say love your enemies until someone stabs you in the back. It's easy to say love your enemies until someone betrays your trust, does something to hurt you or offend you. Then it becomes a lot harder, right? Push comes to shove. And it's harder to say, I want to bless this person, this person that's wronged me, that's hurt me. I, I want to pray for them. I've got, I've, got to, I've got to love them and bless them and pray for them. It becomes really hard because everything in us wants to do the opposite, right? Everything in us wants to hurt them. Everything in us wants to stab them back, punch them back, hurt them back. We want to do the opposite of love. And so it's easy to say it's hard to do. But Jesus not only said those things, he did them. He, he said to love your enemies and he lived it out. And so we come to this moment where Jesus is on the cross. right? And, and, and he has already been flogged with what is called the cat of nine tails, which is this whip with these strings of leather. And tuck, uh, attached to this leather are fragments and shatters of, of, of bone and glass and broken pottery. And those, they would take that whip and hit it over his back and then rip it off. So all those shards would, you know, lodge into his back. And then they would rip it off and all the skin with it. And so they would beat him over and over with that until all of his skin on his back was gone. All those nerve endings on his back are exposed. And then they put a giant, splintery, rough, wooden cross across that back that they just beat and ripped all the skin off. And he had to carry it up this hill. And so now it is grinding. It is rubbing back and forth across his exposed back and nerve endings. He's having to carry that up this hill, right, where they're then going to stand the cross up, put nails through his hands and his feet, hang him up. So then his lungs are going to be filling with blood and he's going to be suffocating, asphyxiating on his own blood as he has to pull himself up on the nails that are in nerve endings on his hand and in excruciating pain, pull himself up to get a breath. So all of this is happening to Jesus. Those people that have done this to him are laughing at him, are mocking him, are gambling over how long he's going to live and are dividing up his stuff and his clothes. They're laughing and mocking him and they've done all of this stuff to him. And what does Jesus do? But through excruciating pain, pulls himself up so that he can breathe and speak. And through the agony of suffocation, he looks at his torturers and his murderers. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus doesn't look down at these men in anger. He doesn't look down on these men in, in hatred. He doesn't yell curses at them, which is what I'd want to do. He doesn't condemn them. He looks on them with compassion and kindness patience, and he loves them, and he prays and intercedes to the Father on their behalf, 
telling the Father that they don't understand what they're doing. They're just following orders. They don't understand who I am. They don't get it. So, Father, forgive them for this thing that they do. Jesus practiced what he preached. He tells us to love those who curse us, love those, love our enemies. And he showed us what that looks like. In his most difficult hour, he shows us that it's not just talk, but that he does it. And this is such good news for us, right? Because if Jesus can love and extend grace and forgiveness to his torturers and his murderers, then surely he can extend grace and forgiveness and love and patience and compassion to you and to me. It is a good reminder that Jesus doesn't just say things, he does them. He's not just talk, he's action. And so when Jesus declares, for example, you've forgiven of your sin because you're in Christ through faith, then you can rest assured you are forgiven because he does what he says he does. Second, the second phrase, Luke 23, 43. Jesus on the cross says to the thief beside him, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. The second thing we learn about Jesus from these last words is that it is never too late to come to him. It is never too late to come to Jesus. You see, you see there, are, there are two criminals uh, on either side of him, being crucified on either side of him. One of them, one of those criminals, begins to attack and mock Jesus, saying, you saved other people, save yourself. You saved other people, save yourself and save us while you're at it. Take yourself down from this cross and take us with you if you can. The first criminal's response is to escape what he rightly deserves, because he was rightly condemned as a criminal, by hoping Jesus is going to save himself and them along with him. And he says that in a mocking sense. The other criminal, the thief on the cross, as he's often referred to, actually rebukes the other criminal. So criminal two rebukes criminal one, and he says, look, you and I are getting what we deserve. We are receiving justice. We are condemned men. We are guilty. But this Jesus, this man in the middle, he didn't do anything wrong. He's innocent. And he glances over to Jesus after saying this with a simple request. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I want you to notice what this man does, this thief does in this, in what he said. First, he, he's confessed his sin. Which doesn't mean, when you confess your sin, doesn't mean, oh, I've got to go through the laundry list of every sin I've ever committed. Right? Because one, it'd be way too long. It'd be more, long. y'all remember the Santa Claus movie when, he, when, when Tim Allen gets the, the, the naughty and nice list and it gets delivered to his house and he thinks it's like this one box and he comes back downstairs and there's like boxes everywhere? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Nod with me. Y'all, okay. All right. So, so <laughs> it'd be longer than that list, all right? So there's no way you and I are going to come up with all the list of our sins, all right? That's not what it, what it means. But this thief owns up to the fact that he's guilty. He owns up to the fact that he's guilty. You see, confession is agreeing with God with what is true. That I'm a sinner. That I've fallen short of his law. I've fallen short of his grace. And that I deserve death. 
deserve condemnation. It is agreeing with God that those things are true. And this man does that. This thief does that. He says he is getting justice he deserves by hanging on that cross. But the second thing he does is he recognizes who Jesus is. That Jesus is innocent. And that he's king. And that he's going to this kingdom. And so he makes this simple request. He says, remember me. He's confessed his sin. He's recognized Jesus' innocence and who he is, that he's going to a kingdom and he's king, and remember me. And Jesus' response is such an encouragement to us because what Jesus does not say is, well, okay, repeat this little prayer after me. He doesn't say, okay, close your eyes, bow your head, and, and, and say this prayer. He doesn't say, well, make sure you say these right words. He doesn't say, okay, get this formula exactly right. Say this and then this and then this. He doesn't say, well, if you do this and then you do this, I'll think about it. He puts no conditions and he tells him he doesn't have to do anything else. He sees this man's faith in the last moments of his life and he saves him. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today. I think we learn really two things here. One, we learned that coming to Jesus, while in many ways is really hard, is very simple. We come confessing that we're sinners. We come confessing that he is Savior, that he is King, and Jesus does the rest. He does the saving. We come with the right posture, believing the correct things about who he is and what he's done, and he is quick to save us. He is trigger happy with grace. He is quick to show mercy, quick to forgive. He is not holding it over our heads, asking more for us, and well, you're almost there. If you do just a little bit more, then we can talk. Oh, just a little bit more, then I'll save you. No, he is quick. He has done the work. He sees this man's faith and he lavishes, as Ephesians 2 says, lavishes grace upon him. The second thing we learn, learn the main thing here is that it is never too late for you to come to Jesus. This man, by all accounts, has lived a terrible life. He's a criminal. He's done all kinds of bad things. And yet it was not too late for him as he hang suffocating and dying. You see, you do not have to clean up your life before you come to Jesus. You do not have to fix everything and clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. In fact, you couldn't clean yourself up enough to come to Jesus if you wanted to. You couldn't get your life right enough to come to him even if you wanted to. You see, Jesus wants you just as you are broken and shattered so that he might put the pieces back together. Not you. You'd put them back together wrongly. And so it is never too late. You might be 60, 70, 80, 90 years old, and maybe you have run, ran from God your whole life. Or you could, be, you could have been religious your whole life, but never really trusting in Jesus. And it's not too late. You've not run out of chances. You've not used up all your opportunities. You are not out of God's good graces. If with your next breath or if with your very last breath you uttered prayers of faith and trust in Jesus, he will lavish grace on you bigger and quicker than you can imagine. So 
don't give up on people. There are friends and family in your life who are far from God, and it is easy to give up on them. They'll never turn. Man, until they take their last breath, there is hope for them to come to faith. And if you are here this morning, and you've got every excuse in the book of why you can't come, because you're too bad, you're too messed up, you've not been in church enough, you don't know the Bible, you know, whatever. You're not a good person, you need to get some things right first. Whatever excuse you come up with, throw that crap away. Because Jesus wants you now, just like you are. He wants to take you and mold you. He wants to fix you. He wants to take you and make you a part of his family, just as you are right now. He takes this thief on the cross and in his last dying breath saves him. Third thing he says. John 19, 26, he says, Woman, behold your son and behold your mother. You've probably heard the phrase before. Man, you're talking about somebody. Man, that guy is so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, that somebody is so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. The idea that if you are so worried about spiritual things, that you will forsake the things going on in the here and now. So if a follower of Jesus was so consumed with thoughts of heaven and thoughts of spiritual things, that he would be useless to here and now and to the struggles and the pains and the problems of the right now. But that logic does not hold up. Because there was no one more heavenly minded than Jesus. And all the time, all throughout his life, we see Jesus caring about the things of earth, about the things of here and now. Whether it was a party that was about to run out of wine and he wanted to make sure that there was not embarrassment on this family. And so he provides more wine, water into wine. Uh, so, so there's no embarrassment. He saves the party. Or whether it was people who were sick that he healed, he cared about the here and now. And we see that again as Jesus hang here dying on this cross. In the crowd of people, watching Jesus die was his mother, Mary, and one of his disciples, one of his closest disciples, John. We don't know what has happened to Joseph, Mary's husband, but we know, you know, Jesus' adopted father, Joseph, but we know that he's most likely dead. He's not in the picture anymore. He's gone. And now Jesus is the eldest son of Mary, and it was his responsibility to care for his widowed mother. And though Jesus had other brothers, right, he had other, Mary had other sons, they were not present at his crucifixion. And they were not believers in who Jesus was. They, yeah, they were going to become that, but they weren't yet. And so in this moment, Jesus entrusts his mother into the care of John, one of his most trusted disciples. This matters because it shows us that being heavenly minded means you care about the things of earth. The more spiritual, the more spiritual you are, the more you care, not just about the afterlife, what you do, but you also care about this life. You see, we learn that Jesus was so heavenly minded that he did earthly good. It's actually the opposite of the phrase. But Jesus on the cross was achieving heaven for us, right? He was achieving 
heaven for us. He was doing spiritual work, but that did not come at the cost of earthly temporal work. It goes to remind us that Jesus does care about the things of earth. That he cares about your family. He cares about your daily bread. He cares that you eat and live and enjoy one another. It reminds us that Jesus understands our life. Right? That he's walked in our shoes. That he knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be sick. He knows what it is like to be tempted. He knows what it's like for a party to go poorly and to feel embarrassed. He knows what living our complicated lives are like. And he cares. Sometimes... I want to pray for things that seem quite trivial and quite small in the grand scheme of things. And I am tempted in those moments to think, man, I can't pray for that. I can't pray for this little thing. Jesus doesn't care about that. I'm tempted to think that he doesn't care about these small, trivial matters in my life. And I have to remind myself that no, he does. He cares about me, and he cares about everything in my life, no matter how small or insignificant. And he wants to hear, and he wants me to come to him in prayer over those things because he cares about the things of earth, about the things of here and now. See, Jesus is so heavenly minded that he cares deeply about earthly things, and so we should bring our concerns to him. The fourth phrase, Matthew 27, 46, records this, so does Mark 15, 34. Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is a fascinating verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's fascinating because how does God forsake himself? How does God forsake himself? You see, Jesus, while he is the second member of the Trinity, he is fully God, right? He didn't become God. He wasn't like a demigod. He was God, very God. He was completely God. But while he is fully gone on the cross, he still feels something that he had never felt up until this point in his existence, which is for eternity, eternity past, right? He felt in this moment the Father, God the Father, turn his back on him. Now, you got to understand, for eternity past, meaning there was no beginning Right? It's hard for our minds to understand, but there, is not, there was not a beginning point for Jesus. He has always existed. There has never been a moment in, in the past history before the creation of the world in which Jesus did not already exist. All right, y'all got that? I don't, but <laughs> we're going to try. So he's always existed, and he has always existed in this perfect harmony and unity and relationship with the Father and the Spirit. Right, this trinity, perfect relationship, all of them loving one another and this perfect, singular, uh, um, harmonious relationship forever. But in this moment on the cross, Jesus, God the Son, feels this pull, this separation, this division from the Father that has never been in the history of his existence, which is forever. That connection that has always been there is now severed. That there has never been a moment like this before. That the Father turns his face away from the Son, alienates the Son from the Godhead, from the Trinity, forsaken, alone, and cut off. But why? 2 Corinthians 5.21 reminds us, For our sake he made him, so the Father made him the Son, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, in this moment, became sin. He became the embodiment of sin. In that moment, all of the sins of the world were placed on him, and he bore the weight of the wrath of God, of the justice of God, and he was cut off from, separated from God, just as we are and just as those who are cast into hell are forever separated from God. God turned his back on his son and showed him the anger and justice that we deserved, but he showed it to his son instead. You see, Jesus in this moment was our substitute. He was our substitute. He traded places with us. He was cut off so that we didn't have to be cut off. You know, for for thousands of years, the Jews gathered together once a year to take a spotless lamb and sacrifice it on the altar in the temple. And that blood uh, of that lamb symbolized taking the punishment that Israel deserved. And then they would take a second lamb or a goat and they would send it out into the wilderness. They would send it away from the camp, send it away from them. And it symbolized God sending their sins as far as the east from the west, removing their sins from them. It was the scapegoat, which is where we get that word. Both of these, however, didn't remove sins. They were simply symbolic. And when John the Baptist first saw Jesus, before he baptized him, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he was right. You see, Jesus is that to which all of those, all of those bloody dead lambs pointed to. All of those sacrifices pointed to. Jesus is the true Passover lamb, the true scapegoat, the true sacrifice. And Jesus took our place on the cross and he takes hell in our place. The wrath and justice and punishment of God in our place. And he saves us. Now I want you to understand something. When we say Jesus is our substitute and that he's this sacrifice and that he's this lamb, who or what is he saving us from? He is not saving us primarily from Satan or the devil. He is not primarily saving us from ourselves. He is saving us from himself. Jesus is saving us from God. Do you understand that? That on the cross, he is saving us from his own wrath, his own justice, his own anger directed at us. He's saving us from himself. He's our substitute for his own wrath. Because the goodness and holiness of God demands justice. If God is good and a rightful judge, he demands and must punish us. Punish us. Justice demands that we die. Justice demands we spend eternity in hell. And the only way for God to save us was to die in our place, to bear his own punishment and wrath in our place. And so he takes it on himself. So you see, that is why Jesus feels forsaken on the cross, because God punished him. He punished himself so that we could be set free. So that your sins can be cast as far as the east from the west. And the amazing thing is that not only was Jesus our substitute, but that he chose to be our substitute. That he chose to come bear his own wrath while we were still sinners and enemies of God. To think that God would be cut off from himself for the sake of those who would crucify him is mind-boggling. For our sake... 
he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For you and me, for sinners, for the broken, Jesus left the glories and the throne of heaven to walk through the fires of hell so that you and I might be delivered from that fire and be made sons and daughters of God. God was forsaken, the Son forsaken by the Father, so that you and I would never be. So that you and I would never have to utter the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We will never have to say or ask the question, God, why have you forsaken me? But instead, we get to ask, my God, my God, why have you accepted me? And we know the answer. Because at the heart of the gospel, we find God substituting himself to receive his justice in our place. The fifth phrase is from John 19, 28. And it's a very small phrase. He says, I thirst. John 19, 28, Jesus says, he's hanging on the cross. He says, I thirst. Hanging on the cross, he is suffocating. His lungs are filling with blood. And after panting and breathing heavy and everything that he's gone through, He's thirsty, right? Like, he wants a drink. He's thirsty. You, you might think that there is nothing to learn from these two words, but they are actually a helpful reminder of a very important theological truth. You see, we know that Jesus was fully God, right? We get that. We know that he was the creator of the world, but the fact that he's thirsty reminds us that he is also 100% man, that he is Completely human. Point five is Jesus was fully human. Jesus is not a demigod. He is not 50% God, 50% man. He is 100% God and 100% man. And so in his humanity, he's thirsty. His mortal body grows weak. It reminds me of if you've seen the Thor movie. When he comes down to earth for the first time. You know Thor, the god of thunder. What does he say? He says, I need sustenance. This mortal body grows weak. He chugs this yellow liquidy drink in a big mug, and he slams it down and breaks it and says, I'll have another. It's a funny scene. My wife quotes it a lot when she's hungry. Jesus had a mortal body, and it grew weak, and he thirsted. It's interesting that this phrase comes in John's gospel because John is the only one who records the account of the woman at the well. You remember that account when Jesus offered that Samaritan woman living water from the well? She said, you've got nothing to draw with. Where does this water come from? The well is deep. How are you going to get it out? And he offers her this living water and he says, she'll, if she drinks this water, she'll never thirst again. So now we see that the one who has offered living water yet himself is now thirsty. It is a reminder that in order for him to offer to us this living water, to never thirst again, to have spiritual everlasting life, that he had to suffer human pain, that he had to suffer the human curse, that he had to go through everything we do and yet not sin and die the death we should have died, that he had to thirst so that we could be quenched. It is a reminder that Jesus set aside his divinity and suffered and lived and experienced everything we do just as we do so that the book of Hebrews might tell us that we have a high priest in Jesus who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's walked in our shoes. He knows our pains and struggles, and he has sympathy with us. We do not serve a distant God. 
We do not serve a distant God who lives off in a palace, aloof and distant and indifferent to our feelings and experiences. Instead, we serve a God who has left his throne to walk in our shoes, to suffer as we've suffered, to to live as we've lived, to struggle as we do, and to thirst as we thirst. We serve a God who gets it. We serve a God who's been there and done that. And so because of that, we serve a God who sympathizes. Because the one who offers everlasting water was drained dry so that we might drink in full. The sixth phrase, maybe the most famous phrase of Jesus on the cross, John 19.30. He pulls himself up and with a loud voice says, it is finished. To tell us die, it is finished. But what is finished? What is finished? His life? The work he came to do in this moment was finished. Yes, the resurrection was coming, but that wasn't the work that he needed to do. That was the, fa- the resurrection is the Father accepting the work that he did. It is the receipt saying, debt paid in full. The work Jesus finished was on the cross and it was twofold. One, he had to live a perfect life. His whole life, from the moment he was born until this moment that he dies, he had to live a perfect life. Because if he was going to be our sacrifice, he had to be sinless. The reason all of those lambs that were sacrificed for all of those years were, had to be perfect and blameless and unblemished with no spots and no janky broken leg and no jacked up ear was because they pointed to a, a sacrifice that had to be perfect and flawless and without blemish. And Jesus was that. But the only way he could be that was to live this full human life, to walk in our shoes and not sin, to be tempted in every way that we are and yet not sin. He had to be perfectly righteous. Jesus had to always obey his parents because he knew you couldn't. Jesus had to never lust because he knew you would. He had to never cheat and never lie and never gossip and never envy because he knew you would do those things. He had to be perfect in every way because we never could. And so hanging on the cross, he goes from being sinless and perfect and blameless and righteous to becoming sin itself. To becoming sin itself. And the Father pours out his wrath and anger and justice on him. And in this moment when Jesus speaks these words, it is finished. He is saying that he has lived the sinless life. And now he is about to breathe his last. And he has taken upon the full weight of the wrath of God on his shoulders. He has bore our punishment in our place. And so now his work is complete. Jesus completed his mission. For us. This means that all we have to do to be saved is to look to him. Look to the one hanging on the cross. Look to his work that he's done on our behalf. What it means that it is finished is that there is no work left to do for you and I. It means that it's been accomplished, that all of our salvation rested on his shoulders. And in this moment, redemption was accomplished in full for us. So much so that all we have to do is look on him in faith and it's applied to us. Parents, have you ever asked your kids to go do something for you? Go clean the kitchen, go clean your room, go do this or that. And they come back to you and they say, okay, mom, okay, dad, it's done. It's, it is finished. And you say, thanks. And you go to inspect it. You go to look at the kitchen. You ask them to clean. And you understand why they think it's done. You understand why they think it's finished, but it's not. 
You see all the crumbs still there. You still see that one spoon in the sink. You still see the, the floor that needed to be swept. or You still see the little work that they didn't quite get to. But instead of going and getting them and scolding them, you appreciate the work they did and you just kind of finish it up for them. In the same way, when Jesus says it is finished, it means what he means. It means it is done, that there is no work left to do. But yet, but yet, the problem is we don't believe it sometimes. The problem is sometimes we think, well, there's got to be a little bit of work left. Like, he's done a lot of it, but maybe there's a little bit. Maybe I still need to live really good. Maybe I've got I to gotta strive to be really holy or really committed. Maybe I've got to go to church so many times. Maybe I've got to be so thankful. Maybe I've got to do this or that or say the right words or this. But you don't. It is finished. It is done. He has accomplished the work. And all you got to do is receive it. It's just got to be applied to you. It's just got to become yours through faith. Through faith, it's become all that he did is now yours. The perfect life he lived is yours. You've lived perfectly when you're in him. It's finished. He's done it all. And so we can wrestle. We can stop trying to finish the job for him. We can rest in what he's already accomplished and already completed. Simply look to him, rest in him, believe on him. The work is done. And rest that redemption is accomplished. It is finished. Mission completed. Mission accomplished. He did it. So rest in him. Finally, the final phrase of Jesus, Luke 23, 46 as he's about to die, as he takes his last breath, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is interesting to many scholars that there are seven phrases of Jesus. It's interesting. Seven is obviously an important number in the Bible. But it corresponds, it seemingly corresponds to the seven days of creation. And the last phrase is similar to day seven of creation, that at the end... God rested. In Genesis, God was resting from his work in creation. He worked each day and made something and said it was good, and on the seventh day he rested. But here in the gospel account, Jesus again is resting after his work. He's giving up his spirit to the Father to rest in death. But this time, not from creating the world, but from redeeming the world. If the first time he rested was in creating the world, he rested after giving life. Then the second time he rests, he rests in giving life again, but this time he rests in death. He rests in death knowing that very soon there's going to be a resurrection, and that resurrection is step one, or maybe day one, in a new process of building a new creation, a new earth, a new heaven. The first creation had failed, it was cursed, it was corrupted and broken, and the only way to make the world new wasn't to destroy the world, wasn't to blow it up and make a new one, but to take the curse of sin, to take the corruption and take the brokenness into his own body, to take the curse upon himself, so that as he died and he was buried in a grave, that he would take that curse and bury it in the grave too. But yet when he was resurrected, he would leave the curse in the ground. The beginnings of building a new creation could begin. 
So Jesus rests from his work. He rests in death because in his death he brings life. See, point seven is Jesus rested because his work in redemption was completed. And just as Jesus rested in the creation of the world, because remember, Jesus is the when God speaks in Genesis, it is the, it's Jesus, right? He's the voice of God. He's the word of God. So Jesus is creating the world in Genesis 1. And it's a reminder, it's teaching us in Genesis that we too must rest. We must physically rest. And so you had this whole Sabbath day thing. And as Hebrews tells us, there is a greater rest coming. There's a rest that we are still longing to enter into, a rest for our whole bodies and our whole being, our whole soul, our whole mind, our whole everything. And Jesus accomplished in this second creation, in this new creation, his, uh, his redemption of all things, a rest for us is now coming, not in death, but in everlasting life. A rest that we now have in part, but will soon have in full. As one day his work will be fully complete and we will live in a new creation forever. And so we look at the last words of Jesus knowing they're not the end of the story. These last seven phrases of Jesus are not the end of the story. They're simply the middle of the story. And that not only would Jesus rise from the dead, but now we look to the clouds awaiting his return saying, come, Lord Jesus, come, so that we might enter into the rest, that we might enter that completed new creation, so that we might live forever in a kingdom that will not pass away. And so we look to the clouds, praying, come, Lord Jesus, come. The final words of Jesus on the cross show us a Savior who practiced what he preached, who is quick to show grace and mercy, who cares for the here and now for earthly things, who, who loved us enough to be cut off and bear our penalty and be our substitute, who is fully human and who sympathizes with us. We see a Savior who's completed his mission and a Savior who has rested from his work just as we will enter into the rest that he has secured for us. And as we move into this Easter week, looking forward to that resurrection of Jesus, remember, remember his work on the cross. Remember what he's done. Remember his love. Remember the cross because it is through his death that we find life. It is through his penal, substitutionary death that we find life. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we get, we get, we're about to enter into a week of hopefully great reflection and great thinking. As we think about all the things that happened to Jesus on the week leading up to his death. The Last Supper and his arrest and the sham trial and the prayer in Gethsemane and all these other things. As we think about Jesus dying on the cross and we imagine the three days of, of silence and of heartbreak and of hopelessness as Jesus lies in a tomb. We look forward to the day that we celebrate that the tomb is empty. And that empty tomb means everything. It means that what Jesus did on the cross took, that it worked, that he accomplished his mission. That we can be saved, that redemption is accomplished, that we can be made new. We can be made as sons and daughters. And so, God, we're, we're thankful for that. And, Father, if there are people in this room, as, as I know that there are, there are undoubtedly people in this room right now, right this very second, who are like that thief on the cross who in what one moment was bound for hell 
but that a quick turn of faith, a nod in this, your son's direction, confessing this sin and recognizing who Jesus was, that you saved them on the spot. And God, we know that there are people in this room that right now are bound for hell. They stand under your wrath condemned. But that if they would just turn in your direction, broken, flawed, and all, that you would sweep them up into your embrace, lavish your grace and mercy upon them, and make them your sons and daughters. So if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, all these things that we've talked about on the cross, they don't apply to you because you don't belong to him. This morning, I'm going to stand up here as we sing this next song. Just come up here and say, Brent, I want to know more about what it means to belong to Jesus. And I can show you just how easy it is, how you can receive what he's already done for you. If you're here this morning and you are reminded that long ago or at some point he brought you to faith, that you believed in this son and the work of this cross, stand and let's sing this song with all that we have, remembering who our Savior is and what he's done. If you need to pray about anything, I'll be here. I'd love to pray with you. If not, let's stand and sing together. God, give us strength to do what we need to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand together.